0: Well, I want to welcome you. Uh, happy Sabbath. I welcome those joining us over our, our Facebook page, those joining us over YouTube. God bless each and every one of you. We're about to get started here in a, a wonderful message uh, and study here about the the closing scenes of uh, of Christ's life and, and the parallels that it will have uh, with those who live in the end of time, his followers who follow him. Uh, in fact, I have entitled this series, The Closing Scenes, Following in the Crisis of Christ. And we're about to get started into that study. And before we do, we want to have a, a season of prayer. So I invite you to bow your hearts and and, uh, and your heads with me at this time. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day, beautiful day you've provided for us here in Indiana. Wonderful sunshine, uh, blue skies, the birds are singing praises to the And it's just a very, very wonderful Sabbath morning. Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us as we we take a look at uh, the closing scenes of Christ's life. And we pray for discernment uh, to see the parallels that are involved with those uh, of us who live here in the end of time who want to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And so, Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and our minds and help us to have understanding. Uh, Forgive us for our sins Lord we pray that you will cleanse us from all our unrighteousness and may we learn at the feet of the master this morning we pray for those who couldn't be here this morning those who uh, are ill those who are having uh, whatever issues they may have we pray that you will be very near to them and heal them according to thy will father and as a people we pray that we will come closer and closer together with thee and thus with each other. Give me the words to speak, I pray this morning, Lord, in the name of Jesus, who's worthy. Amen. Amen, amen and amen. Well, friends, um, as I was thinking about uh, uh, these closing scenes, um, it was very interesting the memories that pop up. You know, as you go through some some of this uh, studying into the Bible and you try to relate. Uh, to some of the things that you've been reading, and and I recalled back in the fall of uh, nineteen ninety nine, I'd lost my job, uh, being called into full time ministry, and that's a story in and of itself. But at the time, I was I was doing some odd carpentry and masonry uh, maintenance jobs uh, to sustain the family, as well as praying uh, for guidance as to the next step I was to take in ministry at that particular time i was working very closely with the local church pastor uh, too and and as and we were right at at that time in the middle of a public evangelistic campaign and this is when my already seemingly topsy you know turvy world was turned even more upside down it was in the middle of this public outreach uh event we were right in the middle of it and it was scheduled for about five weeks so we were two and a half weeks into it, pretty much right in the middle of it uh that the church leaders from the the conference uh the seventh day Adventist conference when we were members of the conference church there uh that they gave an ultimatum to the pastor to either resign or be fired <laughs> and uh and we had a split in the church, you see, and the, the ones who were against the pastor were always talking to the brethren at the conference. And though, though we were doing all the work and everything was on the upswing as far as spiritually speaking, uh, they came back with this ultimatum. Of course, later on we found out uh, some of the real reasons was because of the uh, the effect we were really having and the the complaints from the local diocese. Anyway. But looking back on that experience, um, I can see the hand of God putting me into the positions that I needed uh, to be in to learn valuable lessons of faith and trust. But at the same time, you know, and I'm sure some of you can kind of relate being in certain circumstances like that, uh, not really seeing the future ahead of you you kind of have an idea but you you know it's kind of foggy to you uh, we can be oblivious uh, can't we to the end game you know because the current situation has our sight gripped to the reality of today and these experiences led me to study more earnestly than the bible and especially the topic of who and what is the church and it was something i learned During all that study, that brings me to our topic for for this time. One of the first books that I began to reread and restudy back in that fall and winter of 1999, during all this upheaval uh, that was going on around me, was the book The Desire of Ages. And I've just recently listened to the audio version again in the last two weeks. I listen to it every day. And uh, while I'm doing some things, and it's just such a wonderful book. But it was during that study there in 1999 of that, I believe, most precious book that the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to the prophetic parallels of Christ's life then to God's people today who live in the end of time, in this great controversy that's been going on between Christ and Satan. In fact, I was so strongly impressed by the parallels... Now, this is back in 1999. I was so strongly impressed by the parallels that I began to make lots of notes uh, with the idea of I was going to write a book that laid out these parallels in the hope that others would be awakened to the, to the condition of the times, the condition of the professed church of today, and, and the times that we were living in, being a repeat, you see, of the history of Christ in his days here on earth. Well, a few months later, in the early spring of 2000, while in Washington on a ministry trip, Ron Spear approached me and he gave me a book. And this book's author, it was a book written by Terry Ross. And in fact, Terry happened to be at that, uh, 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 it was a work ministry workers conference. And Terry happened to be there. I had a chance to to meet Terry and speak to him. But uh, this was a book written by Terry that he that Ron Spear was very enthusiastic about. So he had gotten a number of copies and he was going around to different uh, um, people. Why he chose me, I'm not sure, but he he came to me and spoke to me and he handed me this book. He's very enthusiastic about it. And the book was entitled Prophetic Parallels, which grabbed my attention <laughs> right away. And I could see as, after I read it why Ron was so enthusiastic about it. But it laid out the parallels that were found in the book the desire of ages, with what was happening in the church today. So Terry wrote the book that I had started to write, only he'd finished his before I had finished mine by a good many months, it it seemed. But reading that book was like reading my own notes. And I took that, friends, as a validation that the Holy Spirit was indeed leading me on this pathway. And I'll tell you, my friends, and some of you have heard me say this before, that the book, The Desire of Ages, and I'll even say the book, The Acts of the Apostles, are prophetic books. And I encourage you to study them as such. And what I mean by prophetic, it's not like they predict things. But, the, but uh, what I mean is that the experience and, and the actions that you find in those two books between those who follow Christ and those who follow Antichrist is being repeated today. And so Terry aptly named it Prophetic Parallels, and that's what it is. The the actions of the world against those who follow Christ today will be, though, to a greater degree, more vengeful and cruel than ever before in history. But you get a good picture of what it entails by studying those two books. And as the prophet has told us uh, about this end-time conflict... She has said on a number of occasions for a number of different things, history will be repeated. In fact, let me share this with you. It's from uh, the book Christ Triumphant, page 313. She says many of the prophecies are about to be fulfilled in quick succession. Every element of power is about to be set to work. Past history will be repeated. Old controversies will arouse to new life. And peril will beset God's people on every side. That should grip us. Because she's speaking about us. She says, Intensity is taking possession of the human family. It is permeating everything upon the earth. Can you see it today? Can you see the intensity that is taking possession, possession of the human family? So when we take a close look, friends, at the life of Jesus and we endeavor, as those who profess uh, him as our Savior, to walk in his footprints, we will find that we will be treated as he was treated. Clear up to the end, friends. And so I want to spend time looking at these parallels of his closing crisis together with you, and I've entitled this short series of studies, The Closing Scenes Following in the Crisis of Christ. And this particular study I have entitled, Jesus Foretells the Sifting. In the great plan of salvation, there are two special crises or you would pronounce crises, (laughs) you have the crisis at the close of Christ's earthly life and the crisis that comes at the close of the experience of his remnant people. And between these two experiences, there are a number, friends, of most interesting parallels. And the thought of a parallel is suggested for us in, um, in our first text, which we find in Revelation 14. Um, the first five verses of Revelation 14 give us a picture of the remnant people that are being symbolized by the number 144,000. Let's look at Revelation 14, 1 through 5. The Bible says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, hundred and 4, 000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And we talked about that a bit the last time we were together in our our special meeting. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth these are they speaking of those people these are they which were not defiled with women for their virgins these are they notice what is said here which follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth these were redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto god to the lamb and in their mouth was found no guile for they are without fault before the throne of god Now, concerning them, I want you to engrave in your mind as we go through, uh, actually, as we go through this whole series, uh, but in particular today, engrave in your mind what is said in the last part of that fourth verse. These are they which do what? Follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. So what do they do? They follow the lamb wherever he goes, right? And who's the lamb? The lamb is Jesus Christ. So they follow Jesus wherever he goes. So if he goes over to Mars or to Saturn, for example, they go with him. If he goes through Orion, uh, they go with him. If he goes on to those, you know, unnumbered suns and and worlds in uh, Andromeda, they go with him. And so the Bible here is saying wherever he goes, they go. And I want to go with him, don't you? I want you to go with him as well. Thank God, friends, that we can go. Amen? It'll it'll be a wonderful, triumphal tour to be up there going through heaven with Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, how long will it take? You know, I've had people ask me that, and I don't know, but I'm sure of this, friends. Those who follow him there will first follow him here. Would you agree with that? Those who go with him in heaven will first follow his footsteps here on earth. So we must begin where he begins in order to arrive where he has arrived. So it's especially concerning his earthly life that I wish to study with you, uh, beloved. And if we can parallel the experiences that he came down here to earth to share with us, there will be no question about sharing with him those glorious experiences of the hereafter. Do you see it? And so, in this world, we look upon him as <clears throat> starting there in as a baby, a helpless baby in Bethlehem, don't we? And and we see the humility and, and the condescension, and thank God we can choose to follow him in that. Can we follow that kind of humility? The Bible says that we can. We can even be humble uh, uh, like he was, and meek. And so we We see him at Nazareth, growing up as a child, in a humble peasant's home. They were poor. And he was bearing the burdens of daily toil. And in all that, he was giving an example of patience and love to us. And as we see that, we can choose to follow him there too, can't we? Yes, we can. And as he goes to Jordan to be baptized, we can follow him there. And as he goes to Capernaum in his medical missionary ministry, we can follow him there too. But as we look at his life, we see him come at last to Gethsemane. And there beneath the shadows of the olives, because they they had picked olives from that area for years and years and years and years and years. years. There was a, a press there for olive oil. And so, here under the olives, we look upon a great crisis. And so, I ask you, friends, shall we follow him there? You know, many who profess the name Christian, they stop on the outskirts of Gethsemane. But we wish to follow Jesus wherever, wherever he goes, don't we? And so, as we watch, we see the mob come. We see the Savior taken and hurried to earthly courts, there to be abused and. And mistreated, falsely accused, tortured. Will we follow him there, friends? And that is a question for us to really consider, isn't it? We see him led off to Calvary. We see him nailed to the tree and hung up between the heavens and the earth. Shall we follow him there too? Oh, beloved, if we will learn something of what it means to follow him through those scenes of crisis, we shall also share with him the glory of the triumph. For triumph awaits those who follow him. Amen? Triumph prefigured by his resurrection glory and the hour of ascension back to the Father's house. All of these in one way or another we are to share with him in this last hour before the end of time. And let me make it very clear before I go on that there are some experiences that Jesus went through that we will never in this life, or even really in eternity, fully follow into and have those experiences as Jesus had. Jesus, as the, the God-man, the infinite Son of God, as well as the Son of Mary, Had many experiences as our our sin bearer, as the atonement for our transgressions that we can never enter into as he entered into them, friends. In fact, many of those experiences he entered into so that we might, he he did that so that we might not have to enter into them, you see. He was our substitute. And concerning those, we need to seek to understand as much as possible uh, for our poor uh, um, finite minds to grasp. And concerning those, we shall spend eternity, we're told, in study and still not fully grasp. But while all that is true, it is also true, friends, that there are many things that Jesus experienced that we can and will experience to some degree. And it's those that I wish to study with you especially. Some of the parallels between the closing events in the life of Jesus on earth and the closing events in the experience of the remnant people. Those closing events which we are even now entering upon in our day. And of all the experiences in the life of Jesus, the ones that you and I most need to study are those that come right at the close of his life because they have lessons right uh, uh, of the deepest significance to teach us concerning the closing events of our lives here in this world if we follow on through the time of trouble that's just ahead. Now, you may remember this wonderful statement that I've shared before from The Desire of Ages. It's from The Desire of Ages, page 83. It said, It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination Grasp each scene, and notice what she says, especially, which ones? The closing scenes. Now, I've read that over and over and over, and I thought, why is it that we need to grasp especially the closing ones? I mean, Jesus was an example to us in in all respects, but why the closing ones? Well, friends, I believe that Each word here is chosen with care. And I believe we do well to note the significance of the emphasis on the particular phase of Christ's life that has to do with the crisis at the close for us. And I think that's what she was meaning. We need to really study the closing scenes. The closing scenes of his crisis has everything to do with his people In this our day. All the eternity of the past. You see. Was focused on those closing days. And hours of the life of Jesus. In this world. Do you believe that? All eternity. Focused on Gethsemane. And Calvary. And it is true. It's true also that all eternity of the past, all the experiences of those 6,000 years of the great controversy here in this world, focus on the closing experiences of the remnant people. Everything was at stake, you see, back there in the Garden of Gethsemane and on Golgotha. His hour had come. What, What did that mean? So all creation was focused on that event. And again, in the closing scenes of this crisis, everything is at stake, my friends. Back there, all the universe, as it were, gathered round to behold that great crisis. And so from Prophets of Kings, page 148, we're told that today the whole universe is watching with inexpressible interest the closing scenes of the great controversy between good and evil. And the Desire of Ages says on page 19 that our little world, this planet Earth, is the lesson book of the universe. And the part that we are to play in this closing conflict is very similar to the part that Jesus acted in that closing experience that took place back there in the closing scenes of his life while he was here on earth. So, it is with the deepest interest, friends, that we study these closing events in the life of Jesus to gather from them the lessons that will prepare us for our Closing crisis. And every experience now that comes to us, if we are under the guiding hand of God, is arranged by the Lord to develop in us the characters that will be able thus to to reflect the image of Jesus fully in that great crisis that closes the plan of salvation. We will be among, as we read in Revelation 14, they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And so in this study, I want you to notice especially the preview of the closing crisis that Jesus gave his disciples and the preview that he has given us of our closing crisis. We must remind ourselves that Jesus was never taken by surprise, was he? Yet we in humanity are often taken by surprise. But Jesus knew that his hour was come. We read that in many places. Let's look at John 13, verse 1. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And speaking to his dear disciples there in the, the upper room, just a few hours before Gethsemane, he said in John thirteen nineteen, he said, Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. So Jesus is giving them warnings here of the crisis that he's about to go through, and not just him, their crisis as well. He told them ahead of time what was coming. And the thing he was telling them about was the great crisis that was just ahead for him and for them. And I want you to notice that Jesus speaks directly to Peter about this in John 13 and verse 38. It says, Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. You remember, Peter felt bad about that, didn't he? In fact, he was offended. He was offended that Jesus would say that to him, that he would even say such a thing. But Jesus was seeking to awaken in Peter and in the other uh, disciples self-distrust so they could be prepared by prayer and self-denial for the crisis that lay ahead. Now notice in Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 and 32, this same evening that Christ gave this warning not only to Peter but to all other disciples. Notice what it says there. It says, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Now, if we're studying about parallels here, and I had that in my mind as I was looking at these things, that scared me. I read that and I prayed right instantly, Lord, may I not be one. May I not be one that's offended by you. But Jesus predicted here that they they all were going to be offended. They all were going to desert him as he goes into this dark crisis. But always in Christ's mind, friend, as he foretold the future of darkness was the glory beyond that. The glory as a result of that. You know, as Genesis says, there was darkness, then God created light, right? First the dark, then the light. And and that should be fresh in our minds always, beloved. The remnant people are to be brought into scenes of terrible darkness, experiences of sorrow and persecution and sifting. But always in the hearts of those who listen to Jesus will be the certain hope of the ultimate triumph of the church over darkness to bask in the light of God's glory. Thank God that there will triumph through this darkness every true-hearted believer. We've been promised. And so we read the words of Christ. He said, all ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. And Peter felt bad about this. And we go back to Matthew 26, verses 33 to 35, Peter responds. He he answered, he said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Well, I would say, friends, if you have that attitude, you will be offended. Peter didn't know himself. And that's when Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter didn't give up, though. Verse 35, he says, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. And you know, we we concentrate on Peter here, but notice the next part of the sentence says, Likewise also said all the disciples. They were all right there with him. Peter was sure that he'd be true, you see. Are you as sure in your walk as Peter believed he was in his friends? And then Jesus warned him. He said, Peter, do you tell me that you will be true to me? Oh, Peter, this very night before the cock crows, you'll deny me. Not only once, but three times. You will deny that you even know me. But see, while Peter was speaking for himself, he really was echoing the thoughts of all the other disciples. They were all sure that they would all be true. They were positive of it. Completely convinced. And that only made more necessary the Savior's repeated warnings, you see, but those words never penetrated to their inmost souls. And we sometimes sit there and we read it and we marvel at that, don't we? But are the Savior's warnings to us getting through to our very souls? Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had talked to his disciples about these trials and these difficulties. It wasn't the first time that he talked to them about this dark crisis that lay ahead. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is up there in Caesarea Philippi, many miles from Jerusalem. He was talking to the disciples as to to who he was, you remember? And after drawing from them the acknowledgement that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, notice what it says there in Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, from that time forth, once they recognized who he was, you see, Says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So, notice the setting of this. Jesus brought from their hearts the acknowledgement that he was divine, that he was the Son of God, and he acknowledged. Uh, their acceptance of that truth. He said he would build the church, remember, on that great fact, that great truth. Then having made that firm and certain, he proceeds to tell them of the coming crisis. He said he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Now, how does Peter feel about that? Well, he doesn't like that, right? None of them like that his attitude in the upper room and on the road to Gethsemane reflected his attitude previously. He had never accepted, you see, friends, deep down in his heart, the fact of the coming crisis. He had never really understood it because he had never wanted to understand it. He chose to put it away. Just throw that into the farthest recesses of our mind and let's leave it there right and many of you who are prophecy students and know what's coming are we guilty of the same thing have we taken what's coming the dark crisis and tucked it way back in the back of our minds we're just not going to go there now well that's where peter was Because I wonder if if you and I have really come to grips with what is ahead of us, friends. You know, many Adventists have convinced themselves that there is to be little effort in preparing right now for the crisis that's ahead of us. They, They have belief that there's a Sunday law that's coming. But you know, All we have to do is flee out of the cities and all be good as our bread and water will be assured. Have you ever heard that before? I hear that so much, I I just... uh. How short-sighted can we as a people be? Look through Bible history and see how all too often we, as God's professed people, procrastinate and are caught unawares when God has warned and warned us about what was coming. Will it be different in this last conflict? (laughs) No, it will not. What are we doing today, friends, to prepare for that day? And not just spiritually speaking, friends, but what tangible things are we doing to prepare for the crisis that is coming? And I'll tell you, it's not wrong to think about these things. It's not wrong to pray about these things and then step in faith and act upon the guidance that actually has already been given to us. This is where the spirit of prophecy is the blessing that God intended it to be, and yet there are so many who ignore or condemn the blessing of such counsels to the remnant people. It's unbelievable to me. You know, Jesus gave a profound, yet common sense principle in what he said in John 7, verse 17. He said, and and a lot of times this just goes right past people, but it's very simple. He said, if any man will do his will, speaking of God, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The person, friends, who sincerely desires to do the will of God will be enlightened by God and enabled to evaluate correctly the inspired claims of others. Would you agree with that? They will know those things that God has inspired. And in all honesty, my friends, if you read a Holy Spirit-inspired book, let's say like The Desire of Ages, and you don't believe that the author had a very close personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I recommend you take a closer look at yourself and your spiritual condition instead of that author. Are you really desiring to do God's will? If so, you will not reject anything that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. You will know the doctrine, as Jesus says, because you are being directed by the same Holy Spirit that inspired the authors of that doctrine. Jesus loves us, friends, and he gives us warnings to prepare us so that we may gain confidence and strength to endure the crisis. And Jesus made an earnest effort to open the future to his disciples and warn them to prepare for what was coming ahead. Not just for him, but for them. And that parallels our time. Are we listening? Are we listening? Matthew chapter 17. Verses 22 and 23. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. They were exceeding sorry. You know, in the original, it means they were in great distress. Though they now realized that their master was talking about his death, they hoped and believed that something would arise that would make it unnecessary, you see. And that's really about all they got out of it. They didn't understand it, you see. He was saying these things, and it was just right over their heads. And there were a number of reasons for that. One of the biggest reasons was they were still steeped in tradition. They were steeped into the wrong teachings by the rabbis of Scripture and what the Messiah would do when he came. They believed, well, he'll do something miraculous like he's always done. They've always tried to come and take hands on him, you know, those instances where they tried to lay hands on Jesus, to stone him, and he just walked right through and disappeared. So they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, well, yeah, he'll die and whatever. and They didn't even really think about it much although it distressed them they didn't want him to die but they didn't understand it and so like I said they put it back there in the back of their minds back in that dark recess just stay back there I don't want to hear from you Matthew 20 verses 17 and 19 And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Now to show you how little they got out of and that was pretty graphic, wasn't it? If you go back and you look, you'll see that Jesus gets more explicit, more explicit the closer that that time came. But to show you how little they got out of you know, what he was presenting to them, you know, about his approaching sufferings, notice what it says in the very next verse. Matthew 20, verse 20. I mean, he's, he lays this out, what's going to happen, pretty graphic, and zoom, right over their heads. Verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. What is this telling us about their understanding of the coming crisis? Because what did they want? Why did they approach him? You remember who it was, John and James and their mother. And what did they want? Well, you see, their thinking is, hey, the kingdom's going to be on this earth. It's going to be set up. And, and you know, we were one of the first ones to ever follow Christ. So certainly he has to favor us. And, and so, you know, as a mother, she's looking, you know, after her, her offspring. Let them sit at the right hand and left hand. They wanted the first place in the kingdom. And with almost impatience and lack of attention, you see, they listened to his description of the coming crisis. Yeah, just kind of, well, yeah. Oh, yeah, we heard that before, whatever. You see, their eyes were on the coming kingdom, not on the coming crisis. They were sure that the glory of an earthly kingdom was about to burst upon them, you see. And they were asking for the front seats. They wanted the high seats. And so you can see how little they got out of his description of the coming crisis. Instead of saying, Lord, what shall we do? All right? And you can see it as we go through this series. You'll see it step by step until the cross. They just, you know, they didn't get it. But notice how Luke presents it. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Now, they had a misunderstanding about that, about prophecy, see? So they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Verse 32. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on and they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again, and they understood none of these things, Luke says. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. What he's saying is, it went over their heads. And it wasn't that it was a hard saying, it was they just didn't care to comprehend it. You know, this remind me. Several years years ago, we made friends with a couple from Brazil, and they had a couple boys and young boys. And, and And we thought, when we met them, we thought that they both could speak English, the husband and wife, because we'd heard him speak it. And when you spoke to her, she smiled and would nod her head yes all the time. Uh huh, uh huh. You talk to her and you think she's she's all there, you know it turned out she couldn't speak English at all. And she didn't understand a thing we were saying. And this is like the disciples, I think, were in hearing Jesus say such things about his coming crisis. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just right on through. You see, the, the disciples had their minds all made up how things were going to happen. So when Christ tried to picture in reality the coming crisis for them... They didn't understand any of these things, just like Luke said. And so we see them coming up to that last night. Nobody but Jesus knew it was the last night. You know, they should have known, but they they didn't. And we see them gathering in the upper chamber. And what do we find is the Spirit still in their hearts. Luke 24, verse 24. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? I mean, think of it. Jesus was about to be taken by wicked men and scourged and crucified. And here are those that he loves the most and who think they love him the most engaged in a political squabble over who shall have the highest honors and who shall have the best seats. And how it must have grieved the heart of Jesus. What about us, friends? Do we heed the warnings he's giving to us? Because just as it grieved his heart then, I'm sure it grieves his heart today. Notice how the Savior dealt with it, though. Luke 22, verses 31-32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. He's been warning them, warning them, warning them, and now he's saying, he's going to sift you. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You know, Jesus wasn't just praying for them. He's prayed for us. And even that tender, loving appeal only awakened in Peter his typical self-centered reaction. Verses 33 and 34. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. God forbid we say such things from our hearts, friends. With such presumption. Verse 34. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And so as we look at the the whole picture, do you see how Christ again and again tried to make two things clear? First, the coming crisis involving suffering, persecution, and death to himself. And second, in doing that, his object was to help his disciples to seek and obtain the preparation that would enable them to go through that sifting without losing their faith. Do you see that, friends? (laughs) But we know the sequel, you know. We'll look at it more fully the next time we get together as we follow Jesus into Gethsemane. They didn't know the sequel. Look at this, from the Great Controversy, page 594. Before his crucifixion, the Savior explained to his disciples that he was to be put to death and to rise again from the tomb, and angels were present to impress his words on minds and hearts. But... The disciples were looking for temporal deliverance from the Roman yoke, and they could not tolerate the thought that he in whom all their hopes centered should suffer an ign- ign- ignominious death. Sorry. <laughs> the words which they needed to remember were banished from their minds, and when the time of trial came, it found them unprepared. Notice what she says here. The death of Jesus as fully destroyed their hopes as if he had not forewarned them. Let me read that again. That's a a tremendous statement. The death of Jesus as fully destroyed their hopes as if he had not forewarned them. They were taken by surprise as though Jesus had never said anything about it to them at all. And yet he had spoken of it repeatedly over and over and over again. Now, we think that's terrible, don't we? And it was. But we think that's terrible. But you know what the next word in this quote is? It's a little word with two letters. It's the word so, meaning to the same extent. She says, so... In the prophecies, the future is open before us as plainly as it was opened to the disciples by the words of Christ. Oh, is it? Tell me, is it plain to you? Do you know what's coming? You know, it's your privilege to know. Thank God, dear friends, those who understand the third angel's message know a thousand times more about the future than all the wise men of this world. You realize that? How thankful we should be. And and how we should show our appreciation by applying that knowledge to our our daily lives. Wouldn't you agree? But she goes on. Again, The great controversy, page 594. She says, The events connected with the close of probation and the work of preparation for the time of trouble are clearly presented. What is? The events connected and the work of preparation are clearly presented. This says the events are clearly presented. Let's believe it, friends. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that everything a curious mind might like to know is clearly presented. But what we need to know is clearly presented. And probably the reason God hasn't told us You know, all we'd like to know is because if he told us all we'd like to know, there'd be so much that it would tend to get us off focus, right? Concerning the things we need to know. So in all our study of coming events, we need to be very careful. Lest, like the disciples, we allow our minds to be diverted about something we want and thus lose the revelation of what God sees that we need to know. So let's fix our minds most earnestly on that which is most clearly revealed. Amen? And if there are matters that are not so clear, let's leave them until, you know, in the providence of God, they become clear as we go through the experiences ahead. Because the promise is He will make them clear. My point is, friends, the things we need to know are clearly revealed. And that's what this says, and let's stick with that for now until God makes other things clear. So let me me read it all together here. Again, Great Controversy 594. So, in the prophecies, the future is open before us as plainly as it was opened to the disciples by the words of Christ. The events connected with the close of probation and the work of preparation for the time of trouble are clearly presented. But multitudes have no more understanding of these important truths than if they had never been revealed. Satan watches to catch away every impression that would make them wise unto salvation and the time of trouble will find them what? Unready. So are some people today then filling out the parallels of the disciples? Oh, my friends, you and I may choose, you know. In fact, you and I will choose whether we know it or not whether we will follow the Lamb in the experiences that he went through, or we will share with the disciples the misunderstanding and the disappointment and the failure they experienced. So I ask you the question, has Christ foretold some things today as he did back then? He foretold approaching suffering and persecution as church and state would unite to put him him in a crisis. Has he foretold some things like that for his people today? Absolutely. Revelation 22, verse 16. Hear what Christ is saying here. He says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. He has sent angels to inform us so that we may be prepared. Revelation 13. We're familiar with that, aren't we? As prophecy students... Look at verses sixteen and seventeen, and he causeth all both great and and, and small <coughs> excuse me, both small and great, rich and poor free and bond to receive a mark in the right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Well friends, the time is coming when church and state are going to unite to enforce the mark of the beast, and we won't be able to buy or sell unless we receive that mark. And in verse 15, we see that persecution will become so severe that finally a death decree will be passed against those who will not worship the image of the beast, which God says we must not worship. In other words, persecution was ahead of Jesus and his disciples back there. And persecution is ahead of the remnant people who follow the Lamb today. Now remember... That Back there, Jesus said to his disciples, there's going to be a sifting. Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Remember he said to Peter, but I've prayed for you. And he foretold definitely that that they were going to forsake their Lord because they had not prepared. Has he warned us today that many were going to forsake him again? Turn to Matthew 24 go to Matthew 24 now while these words apply to the time just before the destruction of Jerusalem uh, they apply down here as well today just before the coming of the Son of Man Matthew 24 verses <clears throat> 24 verses 9 and 10 Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Did Jesus tell the disciples they were going to be offended because of him? Yes. Has he warned that many today will have that same experience? Was Jesus Christ betrayed by one of his own number? Yes, he was. So he warns us today that those who are offended and leave God's people will betray their former brethren. We're going to go through those experiences, friends, that Jesus went through. Now, if you've heard me say it many times, there are only two spirits in this world, the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of Antichrist. The remnant people of God will go through the outpouring, persecution, and affliction of the Spirit of Antichrist before Jesus returns. And there's a purpose for it. There is a glorious purpose for this to happen, beloved. God, let me tell you something. God does not need his people to suffer to prove their faith. It has a much greater purpose than that. It, it has all to do with the vindication of the character of God. But I don't want to get off on that right now. There more about that later. But Jesus also said, look at Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13. See, he's warning us about this. He says, and because iniquity shall abound, is iniquity abounding today? <laughs> Absolutely. Worse and worse every day. Just as he said, the love of many shall wax cold. We see that today, do we not? But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. We are going through the experience either friends of Jesus or of Judas, and we can choose. Obviously, we can't have both, right? will either be betrayed as Jesus was betrayed or else we will act the part of the betrayer and join in the persecution of the remnant. Have you ever thought about it that way? That remnant concerning whom Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Christ will again be betrayed and persecuted in the person of his saints. Christ will again be mocked derided, scourged, insulted, spit upon in the person of his saints. And how wonderful it will be, friends, when heaven, remember all the world's a stage, when heaven looking down upon this world will be able to say concerning every one of the remnant, they are going through their trial just as Jesus went through his trial. They are meeting their crisis as he met his crisis. They are reflecting the character of their Savior. Won't that bring joy to the Son of God? Won't that bring joy to the Father's heart? Won't that bring joy to all the angels and all the unfallen worlds? And won't it anger the devil? And cause him to pour out more and more of his satanic fury? No wonder Revelation 12, 17 says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the remnant which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Now remember back in Luke 22, as Jesus said, his... His followers were sifted, and we saw what the the sad results of that were. And so down here today, there is coming a mighty sifting in the church again, friends. Let me share some things with you quickly here before I close up. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 80. The days of purification of the church are hastening on apace. God will have a people pure and true. In the mighty sifting soon to take place, we shall be better able to measure the strength of Israel. Boy, the professed Israel of today thinks they're really strong. Oh, there's a sifting coming, friends. We'll see how strong they really are. A mighty sifting is coming. The next page, Testimonies for the Church again, Volume 5, page 81. It shows what the result of this sifting will be. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. Those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be, rather than subject themselves to derision, insult, threatened imprisonment, and death. Those who have step by step have given up to worldly demands will find it easy to give up their faith and unite with the world. That's what she says. And she says, in this time, the gold will be separated from the dross in the church. Chaff, like a cloud, will be borne away on the wind, even from places where we see only floors of rich wheat. We see rich wheat. It's not going to be that way. Now keep in mind, it's the chaff that leaves. It's carried away by the wind. It's the wheat that remains bundled. Because they're surrounded by God's protecting arms, friend. it's the false-hearted that flee the remnant people remain. the remnant people go through to the end you see the sifting results in purging the church of those who have long troubled Zion by by their their worldliness, their lukewarmness, their pride, their selfishness. but we can't read the heart. We can't detect these tares until that fruit is produced. But in the light of our study, can you see that the sifting can easily take in, not merely you know, hypocrites, they're kind of easy to see, but the tares as well? Yeah, that's easy to see, the hypocrites and the tares, maybe. The sifting can easily take in and will take in those who, like Peter and his brethren, mean all right. But they don't have an experience that's deep enough to meet the crisis. Remember, Jesus told Peter, when you are converted, he said, strengthen your brethren. And that's the lesson that I long God will impress upon our hearts, friends. It's going to take more than a desire to follow Jesus. To follow him, we will have to share with him in the preliminary experiences. Otherwise, like the disciples, we'll be surprised when the mob comes and we won't know what to do. Here's another warning by the testimony of Jesus concerning the coming crisis, our crisis in these closing scenes. The Great Controversy, page 608. As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith, faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. By uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light, and when the test is brought, they are prepared to choose the easy, popular side. Men of talent and pleasing address, who once rejoiced in the truth, employ their powers to deceive and mislead souls. They become the most bitter enemies of their former brethren. When Sabbath keepers are brought before the courts to answer for their faith, these apostates are the most efficient agents of Satan to misrepresent and accuse them and by false reports and insinuations to stir up the rulers against them. Isn't that exactly what Jesus went through? Well, friends, that's what's what's ahead of us. One way or another, we'll either be betrayed or we'll be the betrayers. We'll either be like Jesus or like Judas. And we have our choice. We're making our decisions from day to day. You realize that? If I'll tell you, if you have time, read the chapter on Gethsemane in the book, The Desire of Ages. If you, you don't have a copy of that book, I mean, get a hold of us. We'll get you a copy. Read that. Look at this. I started with this. Desire of Ages, page 83. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination vividly grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. And as we have caught the picture, perhaps clearer than before, that those scenes are given to us not merely to look upon as of historical interest, not merely to look upon to see the great work that Jesus did for us, which he did. All that's important. But we are to look upon them with the deepest personal interest, knowing that we shall pass through those scenes and share some of those same experiences. For as we read in Revelation fourteen four, these are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for a wonderful Sabbath day. We thank you so much that you love us so deeply that you would give us warnings in advance, that you would give us the tools needed, and you would give us a changed heart and desires to do thy will so that we may be prepared for what's coming. We may be those who vindicate your character By reflecting it perfectly to the world. Father help us to that end. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us in deep measure. Not only that we may be changed. Day by day. From glory to glory as the Apostle Paul said. That we may be prepared in preparing others. For the return of Christ. That we have that darkness ahead. May we be a light to the world. In that darkness we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, I want to thank those who joined us through uh, uh, Facebook. God bless each and every one of you and and YouTube. We'll see you uh, next Sabbath. Be sure to join us then. Until then, God be with you. God bless.